0: Our reading this morning is taken from Colossians, chapter 1, reading verses 15 through to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Alistair, for reading. Do please keep that passage
1: open before you. Friends, how is it that we experience fruitfulness and fullness? How do we flourish as human beings and as the people of God? These questions are, of course, evergreen. They are ever important and always pressing. They were pressing for the believers at Colossae, who lived in the cross currents of competing worldviews and religious ideas circulating in the Roman Empire, of the first century, these believers were bombarded with competing visions of fullness, where it is to be found and experienced. Ideas from the world of Judaism mixed with ideas from the worlds of other contemporary philosophies and religions in Asia Minor. And of course, we today live in the midst of our own cross-currents of competing worldviews and religious ideas concerning human fullness and human flourishing, ideas that come from the philosophies and worldviews and religions all about us in today's world. What is it to be a human being? What does it look like to flourish and to live fruitfully? What is it to know the fullness of life as people in this world and as the people of God? We know, of course, that concepts of fullness and flourishing are vastly diverse and competing at the present time, at least as diverse and competing as they were in the days of the Apostle Paul. Is fullness to be found in some form of self-actualization, in giving voice perhaps to something within ourselves, an inward identity, and having freedom to express that, to live that, to have it validated by others, is fullness tied to an experience of justice, of seeing perhaps historical wrongs set right, wrongs suffered by my forebears in race or nation. Or class? Is fullness found in some other form of religious experience or some level of material acquisition or some other achievement or pursuit in the realm of work or sport or art? What is fullness? As Paul writes to the believers at Colossae, he is acutely aware that there are swirling about these believers competing visions of fullness, where it is to be found, how it is to be experienced. And his great concern within this letter is to teach and show these believers that fullness is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. He is concerned that these believers will know and be persuaded of the fact that full and fruitful lives as the people of God flow from knowing and serving Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 sort of give us a summary of the central concern of this great letter. And notice the language of fullness here. Paul prays that these believers may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that is the heartbeat of Colossians. That is Paul's prayer, and that is his reason for writing. And to help the believers in this, notice what Paul does. To lead these believers to live lives of fruitfulness and of fullness, he points them squarely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is why, verse 19. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you and I would be filled with the knowledge of God so as to lead lives fully pleasing to him, we must look to Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In seeking full and fruitful lives, our world, it looks within to find a personal identity or or it looks around to find justice or affirmation. But Paul says, don't look within and don't look around, rather look up. Look up, look up to Jesus Christ, look to the one in whom fullness is found. Our focus this morning is verses 15 to 20, that's where I want to spend our time today and focus our attention. And here in these verses, Paul does one thing and he does one thing only, he presents Christ to us. This is his great strategy to enable the believers at Colossae and to enable us here today to gain clarity about who we are in order that we might live these lives of fullness and fruitfulness, lives worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him. His strategy is to present Christ to us in his majesty and his glory and his power, to present Christ to us in his supremacy. Here the apostle Paul is taking steps to ensure that our picture of Jesus is big enough and not too small, is grand enough and in no way diminished, is mighty and majestic enough and in no way minimized. That's where Paul starts in the teaching of this rich letter. Not not with an inward look at the human heart, not with a sweeping cultural analysis, not with the practicalities, actually, of Christian living. No, he starts with the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. How are you and I going to make sense of who we are in such a confused and a conflicted world? How are we going to find fullness and fruitfulness as human beings And as the people of God. It's not by looking within. It is rather by setting our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by having in our mind's eye a grand vision of the greatness and the power and the worth of Jesus Christ. Of his preeminence both in this creation and in the creation that is to come. We begin with his preeminence in this creation. That's the first lesson here. Jesus Christ is preeminent in this creation, verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the popular imagination, who is the most important person in the world? If we look to Time magazine or to Forbes for their lists of the world's most powerful and influential people, we see the predictable parade, don't we, of national leaders and of corporate titans and of cultural icons. We see King Charles We see Joe Biden and Elon Musk and Bob Iger and Lionel Messi and the list goes on. Recently, a struggling manufacturer of baby formula ran an advertising campaign built around the concept of the most important person in the world. And they nominated every baby in the world as being the most important person in the world. And you can see where this thing was, was going. The message to every parent was that your little bundle of joy is the center of the universe. And of course, the message resonates with the new parent. Of course, it does. It seems it was a highly successful campaign. Sales were ignited. It's a stroke of genius because it touched a chord in the loving parent's heart. Who is the most important person in the world who truly tops the list. Now, Paul tackles that very question here because he sees that everything hinges on the answer given to it, our view of ourselves, our understanding of the world around us, our vision for human flourishing. Jesus Christ, he tells us, is the image of the invisible God. The God of the Bible was for the people of Israel of old, the unseen God, they were never to make images of him to worship. They could not expect to see him base to base. He was worshiped as the unseen God, the invisible, the all powerful creator. His glory could be made manifest at certain times and in certain ways, but you could not see him directly. Key to the wonder of the incarnation, when Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh, key to the wonder of that is that through the incarnation, the invisible God became visible. And in Jesus, the one who walked the dusty roads of this world and lived among us, in him we saw the eternal and otherwise invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, Because he is God himself. If you and I had been walking the dusty trails of Galilee 2,000 years ago and had seen a group gathered to hear a new teacher huddled round to see a miraculous healing perhaps take place and we had caught sight of the man at the center of all the attention, we could have seen the God of all the universe before us, now in human flesh. That's what Paul is saying. And in making this great claim, Paul is telling us that the Jesus who came on the scene 2,000 years ago did not have his beginning in a stable in Bethlehem. That's not where his story begins. No, the Jesus of the stable and the manger came into the world at the incarnation, but he was God and is God from all eternity past, And so in Jesus, we see the God of the universe step into the human situation, take on flesh, become a human being. And so, by the way, Jesus comes to us as the model of an unstained and perfect humanity. If God has become man, if Jesus of Nazareth is God eternal, then in his humanity we see the ideal man, the pattern for our humanity. If we want to see what it looks like to live the perfect human life, look no further than the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the truth, of course. We sing at Christmas each year. You remember the words, once in Royal David's city, stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was the mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. And with the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our Savior holy. And through all his his wondrous childhood, he would honor and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. For he is our childhood's pattern, day by day, like us he grew. He was little, weak and helpless, tears and smiles like us he knew. He is our childhood's pattern. He is our life's pattern. He is the model of the perfect humanity. And so, in a world of confusion and distortion and, frankly, of perversion, we need to look to Jesus Christ to understand what it means to be a human being, to live in this world, to interact with other people, to speak, to love, and to serve. The Jesus who came and lived among us is the image of the invisible God, and as such, he is, Paul tells us, the firstborn. Of all creation. Now, you and I, we we could misread that and think that by those words, Paul means that Jesus was the first being created, the first act of creation by the Father. But that's not what Paul is implying here. No, the divine Son could have no beginning, but as Son, he enjoys the privilege and the position of the firstborn Son of a Father. The whole creation is his inheritance. And it is His not only by virtue of His sonship, but also by virtue of His creative agency. The world, the galaxy, the universe, the cosmos, it belongs to Jesus Christ and it belongs to Him because, verse 16, by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There is nothing in all the universe that was not made by Jesus Christ. And if he made it, then it is all subject to him. All other authorities are actually part of his creation. All other authorities were made by Jesus. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him That is, he worked with the Father and the Spirit and was the agent of creation, and all things were not only through him, but as firstborn, they were for him. Now let's just pause for breath for a moment and take that in just a little bit. All that we see and all that we experience and all that we interact with, all things on earth All things that we glimpse through the telescope, all things that we behold in the night sky, they were made by Jesus, and they were made for Jesus. All human and spiritual authorities, the authorities we see and the authorities that we don't see, every throne and office and structure of power, however dark or evil or opposed to Jesus and his people, they are all subject to him. They're part of his creation humanity itself. We individual human beings, we were created by Jesus. We were created through him and for him. So much of the discussion of identity at the present time So much of the drive of identity politics in the public square, so much of the academic discourse, so much of the work of secular therapists and counselors, so much is governed, isn't it, by the idea that human identity is found within our own psyche and then must be externally expressed and actualized. But you see, Paul takes that notion, doesn't he, and he turns it inside out and backwards. We don't find or create our identity within ourselves. No, we are created beings. We are made by Jesus Christ. The reference point in that sense, then, is not within, but it is without. And our great need as human beings is not to find fulfillment or freedom in self-actualization, in expressing inward uh, reality, it is rather this. It is to know and serve Jesus Christ. It is to recognize his purpose for us, the one by whom we are created and the one for whom we are created. Jesus is verse 17 before all things, before them in time because he created them, and before them in dignity and importance and worth because he is the firstborn son of the Father. And in him all things hold together. See, if Jesus were to stop sustaining the universe in his sovereignty and his goodness and power, even for a moment, it would quite simply disintegrate. It's a very stunning thought. The Lord Jesus is moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond, the sustainer of the universe. Each heartbeat and each breath of each of us and of every human being, it depends upon his goodness and upon his will. It depends upon his active, sustaining work. It's a parallel point to that made in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. You may remember that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. What a thought. Even for us actually to be able to rebel against him in sin, we need him to be actively sustaining our existence. Even for the soldiers... To nail him upon the cross, he needed to be holding them together that they might do that. Now, isn't that remarkable? You know, you think of situations, don't you, where children or teens are in rebellion against their parents, but happily living under their parents' roof and taking their parents' money and their food and asking for the car keys on a Friday night... And anticipating that clean laundry will continue to appear, they would not have the means or the energy or the strength to rebel if their parents were not actively providing for them. Perhaps that story is just a little too familiar. And we think of the attitude of so many. That attitude that each one of us shared before coming to faith, that attitude of scorn and rebellion against Jesus Christ. And yet the reality is this. If he did not sustain our every breath, we would immediately cease to be. Now remember the burden of heart that Paul has for the Colossians. He wants them, verse 10 to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. How is this vision of Christ in his supremacy going to be a help and a prompt to do that? What is the nature of the connection here? Well, in order to answer that, we need in some ways to consider our own hearts. Why is it that you and I fail to walk worthily? Why is it that we fail to please the Lord in our manner of life? Much of the time, I think it boils down to a question of worth and of worship. That is, do we really believe and do we really live as though Jesus is worth our everything, our devotion, our love, our obedience, our worship? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is better and more glorious and more worthy than the sins and the selfish indulgences and me-focused ambitions that take pride of place so often in my heart? Do we believe that? And sometimes our failure to walk worthily, frankly, boils down to the fact that we have a truncated, diminished, and uncaptivating vision of Jesus Christ, a vision that makes him a part of our life and and a part of our concern and gives him a place within our affections, but that does not make him our everything, our all in all. I gather that the English word worship derives from the Middle English term worth-ship, that is, responding to God by recognizing his worth and giving him his due. And I think that's quite a helpful thought here. Do you and I recognize the worth of Jesus Christ, his dignity and his honor and his supremacy, and do we respond with a life of worth or worship, seeking to walk worthily of him, seeking to please him. We'll only do that if we see him for who he truly is. I think it's true for any one of us who follows the Lord Jesus Christ that there will have been a point in time, somewhere in our experience, when we were truly captivated by the worth of Jesus Christ. We saw something of his goodness and his grace, and his majesty, and his power. And we saw in that moment that our lives had to be about honoring him, and serving him, following him, worshiping him. Now, I I just wonder if you can, even now, capture in your memory, and in your heart, that moment. Do you remember when it was? time as a young person a week at summer camp a season at college or another stage in life when the gospel became very very real to you and jesus became wonderful to you your heart it was captivated If we have turned to Jesus in true repentance and faith, we must have had that moment of realization. That moment when our heart and mind were just captivated by Jesus. But here's the thing we so easily lose something of that, don't we? It so easily diminishes over time. Perhaps it hasn't for you in any measure, and if so, praise God. But we so easily, many of us lose sight of him, and we so easily forget. And Paul has in view here the priority of endurance, the need for us to endure, to keep going in this desire to follow Jesus in a worthy way. Just notice what follows today's passage. Notice where he's going to take us with this. Verse 21 And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see, Paul not only wants the Colossians to walk worthily today, he wants them to continue in faith tomorrow. He wants them not to shift from the hope of the gospel next week or next month or next year. And he sees that the foundational key to the stability will be a grand vision of Jesus Christ, a grand vision of his supremacy within the entire cosmos. In our local post office where we live, south of the city of Ottawa, on the wall behind the counter, there has been for many years a A framed portrait, rather faded, but a framed portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. This is not unusual. I don't know if the picture has yet been replaced. I haven't been in for a while. The last time I was in there, it was still the Queen. But it has been traditional throughout the Commonwealth to have pictures of the monarch displayed in key government offices in some classrooms on coins and in banknotes, of course, to remind people of the monarch to whom they owe allegiance and whom they, in some sense at least, serve. The concept goes back to the ancient world. Caesar's image was stamped on coins throughout the empire, and this practice has a certain logic, doesn't it, and a certain wisdom behind it. Keep your sovereign before your mind's eye that you might remember whom you serve. Friends, do we see Jesus for who he is? Do we have in our mind's eyes such a grand and a captivating vision of Jesus that we are moved and driven to seek his honor in our lives, to walk worthily, to seek to please him in everything and in every way? If you, if you don't Yet, no, Jesus, don't trust him, don't follow him. You won't need me to tell you that the key issue holding you back is the question of the worth of Jesus Christ. Is he worthy of your trust? Is he worthy of your worship, your allegiance, your obedience? Is he merely a figure of history, a a teacher on a dusty Galilean trail, a relic of ancient history? Or is he the sovereign? Is he supreme in the cosmos? Now, if he is the former, you should not waste your time. If he is the latter, you have no excuse for failing to bow the knee before him. What do you make of him? If you have dismissed him as an irrelevance or worse, can I urge you, look again at what the Apostle Paul says of him, hear this description of his supremacy, and make sure you've really considered your decision and your response. Paul insists that all things in this world, you and I included, we were created for him. And that means that we will only understand who we are as we look to him. It means that we will only find our true meaning and purpose in knowing and loving and serving him. Jesus Christ is supreme in this creation. And next, he is supreme in the new creation, in the creation to come. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So far, Paul's portrait of the supremacy of Jesus Christ has focused on his place of authority and of privilege within this present creation. But now Paul turns his mind to the creation to come, to the the new creation begun in the resurrection of Jesus, unfolding in the church and promised for a time yet to come. Jesus is the head of the, the body, the church, Paul tells us. The body is the body of Christ, those who have been saved and then joined to Jesus by his spirit. Now, mention of the church at this point might seem rather out of place to some readers you know, we've just, we've just been talking about the cosmos, about thrones and rulers and authorities. We've been looking at the very the grand sweep of things, and suddenly the church is mentioned front and center. That might seem very, very strange to the modern ear because the church looks and seems so very, very marginal to so many people. For our cult- culture at large, the church is a relic of a former age, a social embarrassment, actually, an annoyance to a society which is on a progressive path. Surely the church is just a collection of misfits and people of little account. Surely it is soon to disappear from view and not a moment too soon. And of course, the signs of decline, they are visible in many places. Just the other day, we were in the city of Toronto visiting an area, a neighborhood which is known there as the Beaches just along the shore of Lake Ontario. The the Beaches in Toronto is really a a little village within the city. It has its own rather delightful high street and so on. And I've I've often noticed when we've been there an old towering red brick church, originally a Methodist church, I think, late Victorian, ornate and imposing And I noticed it again on this visit just just recently, and I saw that like so many church buildings throughout the post-Christian West, it had been gutted completely and transformed into a very, very nice block of flats. Now, that's the story again and again, isn't it? I gather that over 1,000 Church of England churches have been closed in the last 30 years, and it doesn't seem that the pace of closure has slowed very much. In the United States... The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, has recently reported the sharpest single-year decline in a century, losing nearly half a million members in 2022 alone. Now, Now, these observations confirm what the world suspects, or at least it seems to confirm it, that the church is a relic of another era, soon to vanish from the contemporary scene. The world thinks nothing of the church. But Paul points us to the great fact that the church will actually outlive the world. The church has the great dignity and privilege of being made part of the body of the one to whom the world belongs. The one who holds the key to the world to come. The materialist cannot see this and does not understand. But the word of God teaches and the people of God No, there is a new world yet to come. There is a redeemed and a remade world on the horizon. And Jesus Christ, he is the start. He is the forerunner. In his resurrection, he has paved the way. Notice how Paul puts it in the middle of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, the mention here of the dead, reminds us that Jesus knows the reality of death. Jesus entered into death at the cross. He himself died and was buried. He was tortured and crucified. He was put to shame in the eyes of the world. And that might have seemed like the end, of course. It might have seemed the unassailable justification for dismissing Jesus and his claims. But the death of Jesus upon the cross was not the end of anything. It was actually the beginning. In his resurrection, Jesus opened the gate to new life, to resurrection life, life which will ultimately be experienced in the context of a new creation. Others will follow. The church will follow. But he is the firstborn from the dead. And the father raised him from the grave, Paul tells us, in order that in everything he might be preeminent. He was raised to rule, and he was raised... To reign. He ascended to the Father's side and he will return to claim his kingdom. And it was fitting for him to be raised to rule and to reign. It was fitting because Jesus, the man, Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, the teacher of Galilee, the prisoner of Rome, the sufferer upon the cross, he is none other than God himself. In this man who came among us, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He truly was and truly is God in flesh. Now here again we encounter this language of fullness. Evidently one of the issues facing the Colossian Christians was a brand of false teaching doing the rounds at the time that suggested that in Christ they had something less than spiritual fullness. They, they needed something more than Jesus. We'll encounter this later in the letter. But Paul is emphatic. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and so in him there is no lack for his people. We will find fullness in Jesus because of who Jesus is. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to come among us, and this was with a purpose, the coming of God to earth in the man Christ Jesus happened so that God, verse 20, through him could reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I don't think any one of us needs to be convinced that there is something fundamentally wrong with our world and with ourselves. We do not need to be convinced that things are not right, not as they could be, not as they ought to be. The natural world is in disarray. Human society is marked by discord and disorder in every place. Nations are at war with one another and torn apart within by divisions. We are confronted, aren't we, by the realities of inequality and of poverty. And we see too many in our world suffer for lack of basic necessities. Our bodies fail us. Physical decline pursues us even from youth, and death comes to too many too soon. And if we would ask the Bible why the world is in such disarray, the, the answer comes readily and the answer comes clearly. It is because our relationship with our Maker is broken. Ever since the first human beings rebelled against God, our relationship with Him has been severed. We have been under His judgment. But the implications are even wider than that. You see, we human beings were given a stewardship over the world that God had made. And when we turned away from the Lord in rebellion and sin, the whole world over which we had responsibility, it came under judgment too. But the redemptive plan of God, the reconciling, saving plan of God in Jesus Christ, it did not simply extend to plucking individual human souls out of this world and then placing them in heaven. It, it wasn't like those rushed airlifts we saw in the final days of the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan, if you remember, rushed departures for a few souls from the airport in Kabul while the city descended into chaos and destruction. No, the plan was much grander and more comprehensive than that. Notice again the comprehensive sweep of verse 20. And, that, and through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, led the way in establishing a situation of enmity, with God, of the disruption of the created order, of the making of the mess in which we find ourselves today, the firstborn of the new creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make peace with God, who rose from the grave to open the door to new life. He led the way in reconciling us to God and establishing a new order where creation itself and the people themselves would be at peace with God. And that new order, that new creation, it begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It comes to us as we trust in him and receive forgiveness and new life in him. And it will come to fruition in a future day when Jesus Christ will make all things new, when he will bring us to a new heavens and a new earth, a place where all things are, go- are as God intended them to be, where there is no sin no suffering, no death, no disorder. Now, that's where the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's where the promises of God are pointing us and taking us. But the key to all this and the basis upon which all of it is possible is the work of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Through Jesus, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself. He was making peace with us through the blood of his cross. In sin, in our spirit of rebellion against God, we declare that we will not have God telling us what to do. We we will not be subject to him. Even though he made us and gave us good gifts in his created world, even though we owe him all that we are and all that we have, we determine that we will not be subject to him. That's the spirit of sin. And in pushing God away, we then move on to live in ways that are right in our own eyes, ways that disregard his design for human life. And the result, it's chaos. It's chaos. The result is ugly. We see the fruit of it all around us. I don't need to tell you. And we now have this fundamental problem of being at odds with the God who made us. We've waged war with him, which of course is the height of folly. As our creator, we've dishonored him. And as our judge, we have invoked his righteous judgment. And the great need of humanity is to have things made right between us and God. There needs to be a comprehensive peace settlement. This will involve payment for guilt, for God is a God of justice. We caused the trouble, so it should be to us to pay the cost, but we're unable. The debt is too big to pay. The chasm, it's too wide to cross. But in Christ, God has come to us. Notice how Paul emphasizes that fact, verse 19. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus who came to us to redeem and to save. You know, this isn't God the Father sending a sort of nameless functionary down to earth to try and sort out the situation like a king might send a junior diplomat off to a foreign country of little account to sort out a minor spat. No, God himself, he came. He came in the person of his son, In the person of Jesus Christ, he has come in order that through him he might reconcile to himself all things. He's come to make things right, to make things new. Sometimes in an international incident, it just takes a brief visit, a key conversation, perhaps a well-chosen gift, a nice photo op, a diplomatic reset, and things can just move forward. But here there's no quick fix. There is objective guilt to be addressed. There is a court case There is payment required. But God did not come to us in Christ to demand payment from us. That's the wonder of it all. He came in Christ to make the payment himself. He came to make peace by the blood of his cross. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is why the Christian good news really is good news. I'm conscious that there may be some among us who actually don't know peace with God. It's possible, not entered into this personally. You're here with family or friends. Maybe you're here out of curiosity, but you you know you don't have this this peace yourself. And it may be that you are acutely aware of that fact even today. You're conscious of it. Things aren't right with God. You know, in your heart of hearts, I'm accountable to Him. I've wronged Him. It's got to be addressed. But do you know this? Do you know that God came to us in the person of his son and by his bloodshed at Calvary made the way for peace? The offer, the opportunity, the invitation is there for you, if you will but receive it by faith. You and I, we cannot know ourselves or understand ourselves as human beings until we first look to Jesus Christ and set in our mind's eye and in our heart of hearts that captivating vision of him in his great supremacy. This is the reference point we need if we're going to navigate life in this complex, confused, and very confusing world. Jesus Christ is the perfect human being unstained by sin. He is the one by whom and through whom you and I were created. And he is at work making us new, even as he will make all things new. Remember what it was that weighed on Paul's heart and moved him to write these things in Colossians. He wanted the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he wanted them to endure in faith to keep going. He wanted them to persevere. And of course, the need is so contemporary The need is your need, and it's my need. And if today you sense that you're flagging in your discipleship, perhaps waning a little in your trust, if you're conscious today that your walk is not worthy of the Lord who redeemed you, if that moment when Jesus captivated your heart and your affections seems but a distant memory now, if that's you and it may be quite a number. If that's you, can I invite you, can I urge you, turn your eyes toward Jesus, supreme one, the the preeminent one in this creation and in the creation that is to come, and learn again that he is worthy of your obedience and your trust, of your life and your all. Learn again that it is fitting and right to serve him and to adore him and that doing so will never be a cause for regret. Let's pray together as we conclude. God, our Father, we praise you. For the Lord Jesus Christ, that the firstborn came and lived among us and died for us and rose again to pave the way for us to a new world and to life with you. Help us to have in our hearts and in our mind's eye a grand and a captivating vision of of Jesus Christ, and enable us by the power of your Spirit to walk worthily for Jesus' sake. Amen.